you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, continuing in our sermon series as we go through Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Um, And uh, let's take a moment to to pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll read the scripture text and and jump into it. So let's pray together. Father, we, we give you thanks for the clarity with which your word speaks. And give you thanks for the, the sufficiency of your word. We give you thanks for the authority of your word. We give you thanks for the, the perfection of your word so that we have a, a sure and certain word here on which we can base our lives. And we pray that as this word goes forth that we would with faith and trust in you, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, that you would equip us and furnish us with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to depend entirely upon you and base the entirety of our lives upon you, upon your promises, upon the statements of your word, upon the commandments of your word, so that our lives would show forth your glory and grace and be a faithful witness for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we'll uh, go ahead and read Ephesians 6, and we'll read 10 through 17 if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read 6, 10 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, I've killed and eaten uh, two snakes in my life. I want to tell you about the first one. Uh, About 13 years ago or so, uh, I was in Wyoming, and I was on top of a mountain with a group of other young men, and we we were talking about the scriptures, and um, our hearts, and about Christ. And uh, we were also throwing rocks off the top of this mountain because that's just a natural thing to do. Um, And so we were talking and throwing, talking and throwing, and all of a sudden, we heard this peculiar noise. It was the first time I ever heard this this noise uh, in person, and it sounded like... It's a bad impression, but, you, you know, we had to be... Uh, certain it was kind of far off, and sometimes in Wyoming, as the wind blows through sagebrush, you can kind of hear the, a similar sort of noise. But as we listened and listened intently for a few moments, we, we could tell this was a rattlesnake. And so naturally, we had to go find this thing. And um, we found it. It took a few moments, it took a while actually. So we were looking and looking and looking. We found it, 
uh, under this big boulder with a kind of opening underneath. And uh, so we found this thing, and so we spent a few moments talking about how we could uh, kill this thing and eat it. And uh, so we went and got a stick. I, I got this stick, and it's, uh, the stick had like a fork on the end with two prongs. And I stuck it in there and dragged the snake out and then put the uh, stick right underneath the snake's head while uh, one of the other guys just stomped its head over and over and over again. It's kind of morbid, I know. Um, but the snake, he stomped its head until the snake died. And uh, another guy was there and really thankful for him because he knew something we didn't. He knew that if you didn't cut a snake's head off, that its bite reflex will still work even after it's dead. So it, the snake, even after it's dead, it will bite you. Um, and it will release its venom, and it can do unspeakable damage even after the thing is dead. I mean, this thing was dead. This, this uh, guy that I was with had cowboy boots on. You know, we're in Wyoming. It had the wooden heel and everything. It was pretty morbid. Uh, but still, this thing could, could bite. And you know what's interesting is even after you cut its head off, the snake can still bite you. It's, it's pretty insane. Uh, and even its body was still slithering after we cut its head off. It was really wild. Uh, and so we, we uh, cut its head off and, and uh, skinned it and gutted it and went home and cooked it over a fire. And it, it tasted like chicken. And now we've been uh, dealing here with Paul's exhortation and encouragement and warning in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And here Paul is... He's, warning and exhorting and encouraging the Ephesians regarding their spiritual enemy, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, as, Paul, or as Revelation 20 verse 2 puts it. And he's giving them fair warning about a particular day, and he calls it the evil day. The evil day. And he's exhorting them to be prepared for this evil day by donning the divine armor. And this evil day, if you'll remember, is... The day in which Satan attacks the believer and and the believing community. It's the day in which he seeks to bite us with his venomous bite. Now, of course, Christ has crushed the head of Satan. We know this. He has won victory over Satan. He has defeated Satan in his victorious life, his death, his descent to the dead, his resurrection, his ascension. Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. Christ has crushed the head of that nasty snake. However, we are still awaiting the day in which he will cut his head clean off. We're still awaiting the day in which he will be tossed into the lake of fire with all his demonic cohorts forever and ever. And in the meantime, he still bites. He still bites. He bites with temptation, with accusation, with deception, with persecution and destruction. And so while we can say, like Churchill did all those years ago and like we learned about a few weeks ago, ah, so we won. We've won. The battle is won. The day is won. Yet at the same time, we're not yet in the clear. There's a battle to be waged still. There's a fight to be had. There are attacks we must face. The evil day will come for us. And to prepare for this evil day, for the day of battle, for the hour of fight, for the attacks of Satan, we must don this divine armor that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Now last week, Pastor Dan skillfully brought us through the first three articles, the the first three pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the the gospel war boots, as it were. 
And now continuing with this, this same theme, we, we see Paul go on exhorting us to prepare for the evil day by being guarded by the shield of faith, by putting on the helmet of salvation, and by picking up the sword of the Spirit. And so we're going to take each of these pieces of armor one by one, looking at the Christian shield, the Christian's helmet, and the Christian sword. Now first we see the Christian shield. Paul says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now remember uh, where Paul is, he's writing this letter from prison. He's in prison and he's interacting with Roman soldiers on a daily basis. He's seeing their armor and this is maybe partially where he gets the idea from. And interestingly, Roman troops, for Roman troops, there are two different kinds of shields, okay? So uh, there was a small kind of round shield that they would use in kind of close hand-to-hand combat. And then there was a larger shield, about four and a half feet tall and, and uh, about two and a half feet wide. And, and this is a large shield. And it's the second shield that Paul uh, uses the word for here. It's the, the, the second shield that Paul is talking about here. It was made of two pieces of wood that are glued together. And then there's a layer of linen kind of placed over it. And then over that layer of linen, there's a layer of either canvas or leather. And, uh, and then the sides of it were kind of arched back a little bit to offer protection on the sides uh, of, the, of the soldiers, and then the, the edges were outlined with, with metal. And uh, before going into battle, these Roman troops would dip these shields into water uh, to protect against flaming arrows and darts from their enemies. Uh, and, and you've probably seen kind of uh, movies that depict ancient armies that would uh, tie rags to the end of their arrows and then uh, uh, dip them in pitch and then light them on fire and shoot them. Uh, well, these, these shields were there to protect against those particular kinds of, of arrows, the flaming arrows, the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, of course, Paul is, is uh, not talking about a, a literal shield here. He's talking about uh, a spiritual shield, a kind of spiritual protection uh, of which the Roman soldier's shield is only a metaphor. And uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Psalms in particular would often speak about God as being the shield of, of the believer. Uh, but here, Paul speaks of the shield of faith, the shield of faith. And of course, the word faith can have different uh, meanings depending on the context. And here, Paul is talking about our, our trust in the God who is our shield, our, our trust in God as our Savior and Lord, our trust in God and in the, the, the truthfulness and power of his promises and his word. We, we must possess faith. We must possess trust in God's word for when the evil day comes because the evil day will come, right? Satan will let his, his flaming arrows fly. And these flaming arrows are some of the devil's schemes that we've already looked at uh, and and discussed in this series. The flaming arrows will be lies that are trying to deceive you and and, and into believing untruths that are contradictory to God's word. These flaming arrows might be accusations that make you feel false guilt or false shame or fear of hell, undermining what Christ has already done for you in your salvation. These flaming errors might be temptations to sin, to sexual immorality, to nurse bitterness in your heart toward another believer, to be apathetic to the things of God, to love money and things more than God and his people. 
But trusting God and what he has said in his word protects you from these flaming darts. Trusting God extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. And to sort of put it in contrast, what it looks like to not stand up or or to not take up the shield of faith, rather. Think about Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The first place that we're introduced to this, this devilish snake this, this, this first place that we're introduced to this ancient serpent. And he comes to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And what does he do? He tempts and deceives Adam and Eve. And he does so by calling into question the truthfulness and veracity of God's word. What does he do? He, he, he comes to, to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.1. He says to Eve, did God actually say Did God actually say? The the attacks of Satan will call you to question the truthfulness of God's word. He will will come questioning the promises of God's word. He will come contradicting the statements of God's word. He will come undermining the commands of God's word. And when he came doing so in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had not taken up the shield of faith. They were not protected with their shield of faith. They were not trusting in God's word, and so they were hit with these flaming darts. And the mass of destruction that followed has been immense. That's the thing about these flaming darts, is they don't just hurt the one who receives the blow, but the damage spreads and spreads to others in other places around the person hit with them. It's very serious that we pick up the shield of faith. And so with that, the exhortation for us here is to prepare for the evil day the day in which the evil one releases his flaming arrows, coming with temptation and deception and accusation, we're to prepare for that day by taking up the shield of faith. So notice uh, the, the, the first few words of this exhortation. It's interesting. Uh, the ESV says, in all circumstances, take up. And it's, it's not as if that's a bad translation, but we're missing some things here. Uh, so the, the word circumstances in the, the, that they use in the ESV, that's not actually there. Uh, a, a more literal translation would just be to say, in all, take up the shield of faith. Or in everything, take up the shield of faith. Uh, but then what's more is that the word take up, uh, the word translated as take up, is, it's kind of a difficult phrase to translate. Uh, we've talked about Greek verbs in the aorist tense before. We've talked about these. It's a tense that doesn't respect time. And uh, we don't have an aorist tense in the English language. And so often, uh, English translators will, will uh, just put uh, aorist verbs into the past tense. And that's sort of what the Young's literal translation does. I, I like the way uh, Young translated it. He said, having taken up the shield of faith. Having taken up the shield of faith. Uh, and that might be a, a better translation for us as we read this exhortation. is because as we consider the shield of faith's protection in the evil day, we need to remember that we're not to wait until the evil day to take it up. The, the day of preparation is now. Today is the day in which we are to take up the shield of faith. Every day is the day in which we are to take up the shield of faith. Now, recently, I found myself thinking fairly often about uh, the Oxford Martyrs, the Oxford Martyrs. And uh, you may or may not know these men. There were three of them. Uh, and they were pastors, theologians, leaders in the Church of England during the time of the Reformation. And two of them, their names were uh, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. 
And during the Reformation, these two had opposed uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and their, their teaching and publicly confessed belief in justification through faith alone and, and that the scriptures are only final authority as Christians. And they had taught and preached this throughout, uh, throughout England, and that was fine for a while. And yet it wasn't all of a sudden when Queen Mary came to the throne. Uh, Queen Mary was a Roman Catholic, and she ordered these men to recant or be burned at the stake. And these men chose to be burned at the stake instead. And so they were burned at the stake October 16th, 1555. They were tied to these stakes. And as the flames were being lit, there and then, Latimer turns to Ridley and he says to him, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Now, they were burnt there and then to a cinder by Mary's troops. And it's such a courageous display of faith and trust in the promises of God. And I want to consider, did Latimer and Ridley just all of a sudden that day, in the evil day, pick up the shield of faith? In the evil day, the day of temptation, did they just all of a sudden take up the shield of faith? Or had they taken it up on thousands of occasions that led up to this moment? Did they just take it up in that moment? Or did they take it up daily as they died to self and chose small martyrdoms, dying a thousand little deaths, leading up to that moment when the evil day came? You see, the exhortation is to take up the shield of faith today, to seek to strengthen your faith today so that when that day comes, you're able to remain steadfast so that when that day comes, you are able to trust in God's word withstanding the temptations of the devilish snake that we call Satan. And how might we do that? How might we strengthen our faith in preparation of the evil day, weekly, daily, everything? Well, for one, we ought to strengthen our faith by God's word, by God's word. We have to remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. And, 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 and that text speaks of faith being initially kindled in the hearts of newly converted people, but wouldn't it subsequently follow that if faith is created by the word of God, that faith also goes on to be nourished and strengthened by the word of God? Therefore, in order to strengthen our faith, we must read and mark and inwardly digest and listen to Scripture. And then not only God's Word, but by prayer, we, we strengthen our faith by going to the Lord personally, daily, communally, corporately in prayer. And, and even when we feel that our faith is too weak to pray, we can still pray that wonderful prayer there in, 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 in Mark 9, 24. I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a wonderful prayer that the Lord loves to answer in the hearts of his people, growing our weak and feeble faith. Not only God's word and prayer. I, I personally uh, have benefited so much and been strengthened so much by reading biographies of faithful believers that have gone before us. Uh, the stories of a, the Egyptian bishop, Athanasius. The stories of, of German pastor Martin Luther. English queen, Lady Jane Grey. 
I think of uh, the, the missionary John Patton, the civil rights leader, MLK, listening and, and reading biographies of these and other faithful believers like these whose faith has endured in the, in the midst of unimaginably evil days inspire and strengthen us. So we're, we're reading the stories of the, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, will put steel in our spines and faith in our hearts to remain steadfast in the evil day. This, is, this, is, this week you might find uh, a story uh, of a faithful believer who went before you to listen to or read. That might, might, might be a good uh, activity for you to participate in this week. Another way in which we can strengthen our faith is, is, uh, is, is to voice our doubts and to discuss them with strong believers. And we all struggle with doubt at times. And unfortunately, uh, some of us can, can tend to feel ashamed or embarrassed when that happens. We can tend to, to keep those thoughts kind of bottled up in our minds and hearts and fail to bring them to light uh, to the believers surrounding us. And yet scripture assumes that we bring our struggles with doubt to our brothers and sisters. That's why Jude 22 tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. The assumption is that our doubts will be brought to those around us so that we can be encouraged and strengthened so that our doubts can be relieved and our faith reinforced by one another. We have to bring our doubts to one another. And this is so important. Not just to bring our doubts to one another, but to continually stay close to one another as allies in this war and in this fight, to stay close to to our Christian community. We're to be each other's allies in this battle. The community of faith is essential to building and keeping the shield of faith. Satan would have us by ourselves when he attacks because we're more weak and more vulnerable. And so we ought to stay close to one another. Be strengthened by one another's faith, where there's more protection and more strength and hardier faith to take up the shield of faith. And then Paul goes on to exhort us to, to put on the Christian's helmet as well. Uh, he, 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 the, the, the soldier's helmet in Paul's day was like a metal bowl with kind of pieces that would go down to protect your neck and your ears and, and your sides. And, and uh, of course, the helmet, again, is figurative. Paul goes on to, to call it the helmet of salvation. He tells us to take the helmet of salvation. And here the apostle is alluding to Isaiah 59, 17. Uh, there the prophet Isaiah foretells of God's mission and work of redemption, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And in accomplishing uh, this mission, this work of redemption, the Lord, uh, as it were, puts on armor and goes into this battle to win victory over Satan and to win victory for us and give us victory over Satan. And Two pieces of armor particularly mentioned that the Lord puts on are the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Now, we're also told to take on the helmet of salvation here. And uh, we need to be careful with our understanding, of course. Uh, I hope that you recall from our previous sermon series uh, that our full salvation as God's people is an accomplished fact. Remember that God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, glorified us, all past or aorist tense actually, so that our salvation is a fully accomplished fact, not in question at all. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. There's no question about it. It is accomplished. It's a sure thing going all the way back to eternity past wherein God foreknew you and predestined you for salvation in Christ. However, here the, the helmet of salvation is something that we're to take. The, um, we're to take it. The, the, the word translated as take it, we could also translate it as grab. Grab the helmet of salvation. Take hold of it yourself. 
And yet, as it stands, our salvation is an already accomplished fact. You're not taking your salvation in its, in its objective sense. Paul can't mean here that we're to take up salvation in the sense that we're to take up our objective salvation that Christ already won for us when he put on the helmet of salvation himself. We already possess salvation in that sense, objectively. So what on earth could Paul mean here? I think uh, what, 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 what he must mean is that we're to take conscious possession of our salvation. Uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the helmet of salvation is the piece of armor that goes over your, uh, your noggin, you know, the, the place typically associated with consciousness and cognition. He's saying that he wants us to have a conscious possession of our salvation. In other words, he wants us to possess a confident assurance of our salvation in Christ. He wants us to be filled with confidence regarding our salvation. And the Apostle Paul elsewhere in the New Testament actually gives us a hint that that's what he's talking about here. If you look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, where the Apostle Paul exhorts the church in Thessalonica to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Now, this is a, a parallel text. It's giving us uh, just a, a bit of a fuller picture of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6.17. And uh, there's some language here that helps us understand a bit more of what Paul is talking about when he uses the phrase, the helmet of salvation. The helmet here is the helmet of the hope of salvation. And, and don't misunderstand. By telling us to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, Paul is not promoting wishful thinking as it pertains to our salvation. You know, often when we use the word hope, we, we uh, mean little else than kind of wishful thinking. I hope that the Buckeyes win the, the national championship next year. Uh, I hope that I get the promotion that I was just interviewed for. I hope I get to go to Chuck E. Cheese for my birthday. Um, I, uh, this is Michael Scott, the, I'm so sick of Chuck E. Cheese. Um, but you get the point. So we, we think of uh, hope as merely kind of wishful thinking or just kind of optimistic thinking. Uh, and that's not at all what Paul means here when he uses the word hope. When Paul uses the word hope here, he's speaking of a confident, settled assurance. That's what biblical hope is. It's a confident, settled assurance. Now, Ian Duguid uh, helps paint the picture well in his book on the whole armor of God. He says, we need to be clear What we mean by the hope of salvation. Most people are hoping to be saved. Nobody wants to go to hell. And not many people actually think they will. But this is not what Paul means by the hope of salvation. In terms of battle headgear, that kind of hoping to be saved is as much use as a floppy sun hat. It may feel comfortable, but it's not going to do you much good when the conflict grows fierce. In the Bible, Hope is never a vague optimism that everything is going to work out in the end. Rather, hope is a settled conviction about where one will spend eternity. Undoubtedly, friends, the evil day will sometimes include the enemy's accusations toward you. He will try to tell you that you are not truly an object of the love of God. He will tell you that there is no way that God would ever save the likes of you. He will want you to be crippled by a a, a sense of false guilt, false shame, false fear. He wants you to 
to make, he wants to make you think that you are unlovable, unsavable, irredeemable, even by the power of God, ashamed over that which Christ has taken to the grave, guilty over that which God has already forgiven, fearing over the punishment that Christ has already bore on your behalf. But my friends, Christ does not want you to suffer from a lack of confidence in your salvation and in his sufficient work. He, does, he doesn't want you to suffer under the weight of false guilt or false shame or false fear. The one who suffered and died a wretched death on a Roman cross in your place wants you to know for certain that it is finished. It is finished. And to be protected in the evil day, you must take up this hearty confidence in the all-sufficient saving work of Jesus Christ and the perfect, true promises of the living God who cannot lie, who cannot mess up, who cannot fail, and who therefore will not mess up when it comes to you. Again, I would remind you of the words of Martin Luther in his letter on spiritual warfare. He's writing to a friend who, who asked him about spiritual uh, warfare and, and how do you engage in it properly. And this is what he says. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, I shall be also. See, we must put on this this helmet of salvation. We must hold fast to our hope We must have a settled conviction and confident assurance in the sufficient work of Jesus for when this evil day comes. And this kind of confidence comes from nowhere better or more than the word of God, which brings us to the last piece of armor, the Christian's sword. Paul says that along with the helmet of salvation, we're to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Similar to there being two types of shields for Roman soldiers, there are also two types of swords. There's a larger sword, and then there's a smaller kind of dagger-like sword used in hand-to-hand combat, and and, uh, the word translated as sword here is for the smaller dagger-like sword. And of course, part of what's interesting about this particular piece is that it's not a, a, a piece of clothing or armor like the rest of the articles mentioned here. This is a weapon of combat, this is a weapon, and, 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 and so it's not there to merely protect you from being wounded. It's there for protection to be sure, but it's there to inflict wounds as well upon your enemy. It's not there merely for defense, but for offensive purposes as well. And as with the other pieces, perhaps it should go without saying, but the Christian sword is, is not one of steel, but of the Spirit. It's a spiritual sword used by the Holy Spirit himself in order to defend the believer and wound the enemy. And of course, the, 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 the chief instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish these things is the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures. As we consider this, Matthew 4 might just so naturally come to mind for some of us. This is a place where, wherein Jesus shows us something of what it looks like to wield the sword to smite our enemy in the evil day. And right after Jesus is, is baptized and his sonship is confirmed to him and to all present, 
Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, it says, to be tempted by the devil. Just like Adam and Eve were tested so long ago, Jesus would be tested, only he would not fail. And this is the, the, the instance in which he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, hearkening back to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, wandering through. But unlike Adam and unlike Israel, Jesus would not fail. And just as Satan went to Adam and to Israel to test and tempt, Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him three times, and Jesus responds three times, refuting and rebuking the devil. Each time Satan comes to him and shoots one of his fiery darts, Jesus uh, uh, extinguishes it with his shield of faith, and, and then he, he uh, fights the enemy with his skillful wielding of Holy Scripture. And on the very last of these temptations, Satan tempts Jesus to turn, or on the very first, rather, uh, Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread and to end his fast. But Jesus so faithfully and forcefully replies with Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did not live by breath, or by bread alone, rather. He lived by the word of God all his life long. He ate and he was filled with the word of God. And my friends, that's my encouragement to us today is to be a people who are so filled, so nourished, so enlivened, so strengthened, so equipped by the word of God that we may know how to wield it in the evil day so that we may know what to do when temptation or accusation or attempts at deception come. This past week, I came across a, a startling paragraph by, by Charles Spurgeon as he's exhorting his congregation to, to take in the word of God, and he's, he's holding up John Bunyan as an example to them. Listen to what he says. He says, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let your eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of God. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. My friends, I, 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 I take up Spurgeon's encouragement. It's my encouragement this morning. Get into the Bible so that the Bible, in a way that the Bible gets into you. Get into the Bible in a way that gets the Bible into you. It is the choicest of all weapons, the very means by which we will chase the devil off and wound him in the evil day. As Luther once put it, he said, the devil fears the word of God. He can't bite it. It breaks his teeth. 
Friends, be so filled with the word of God that it spills out of your mouth, as it were, in the evil day. And to that end, I encourage you to read the Bible. To read the Bible. Every single day, just read the Bible. Some of you are, are, are kind of new to life in the church and maybe even to Christianity. And, 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 and so that you might find this kind of intimidating to engage in reading scripture and understanding scripture. But there's no better way to get started than to just read the Bible. There's no better way to get started. And if you need help, men, there's a men's Bible study that meets here on Saturday mornings. Ladies, if you need help, there are so many women in this church who are skillful in studying the Bible and who I know would love to help you study the Bible. And, 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 and so we have to read the Bible, get good books about the Bible, good commentaries on books of the Bible, get a good, fat, systematic theology and read that puppy all the way through. But above all, read the Bible, read the Bible. But then don't only read it, memorize it memorize the bible notice in matthew 4 how when jesus when the evil day when satan's temptation comes he quotes deuteronomy 8 3 deuteronomy 6 16 deuteronomy 6 13 and with that last text he vanquished satan from his presence he could use the word of god in this way because he had committed the word of god to memory similarly I, i encourage you to commit the word of god to memory you can do this by, by not just reading and studying the Bible, but by reading individual texts and verses over and over and over and over. Personally, sometimes I'll just spend weeks or months in a single passage mulling it over again and again and again and again. I would commend that, that process to you. Or similar, to, to memorize a particular passage. Often I'll, I'll use a method I learned from, from John Piper. I'll read a particular uh, passage over and over again out loud, emphasizing a different word each time. So just for example, we take uh, Ephesians 6.10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I'll read that over and over, emphasizing a different word each time. First, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Next, emphasize the word be, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Next, uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I'll do that over and over and over again until I've read the whole passage through, emphasizing each word every single time. And by the end of the week, I'll have memorized that passage. It's a wonderful way to uh, memorize scripture. I commend that process to you. And uh, I've memorized particular verses in that way. It's a good method for Bible memory. I commend it. But no matter how you do it, what tools you use, what method you use, read the Bible. Study the Bible, memorize the Bible. It's essential that you be filled with the word of God for when the evil day comes. In John John Bunyan's great book, Pilgrim's Progress, he he illustrates something of our our great need for the word of God in the evil day. And he shows us us a beautiful picture of how it it slays Satan and and chases him away uh, from us in the evil day. Uh, in the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan uses the, the name Apollyon from uh, Revelation 9-11 for Satan. And Apollyon comes in chapter 9 to attack poor, uh, the poor pilgrim Christian. And the chapter begins by saying that Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. And he said, prepare thyself to die, for I, by my infernal din, thou shalt go no further. Here I will spill your blood. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at Christian's chest, but Christian had a shield in his hand and which caught it and so prevented the danger of that. 
And then after battling for, for half a day and, and Christian receiving several wounds from his battle with Apollyon, Apollyon moved in for the kill. And Bunyan writes this. He says, Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I'm sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death. So that Christian began to despair of life, but as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly stretched out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Micah 7:8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And with that, he gave Apollyon a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian perceiving, that made Adam again saying, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, Romans 8, 37. And with that, with Romans 8, 37, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and sped him away that Christian for a season saw him no more. See, my friends, if we would deal the decisive blow in battle, we must be armed with the word of God. If Satan comes accusing, Scripture speaks a word of assurance. If he comes tempting, Scripture fills us with tenacity to obey. If he comes deceiving, Scripture is our defense against falsehood. We would be fools to keep God's word sheathed for lack of discipline or busyness or lethargy. We must take up the word of God, God's choicest weapon, that he has graciously armed us with for our protection, we must be diligent to wield it along with taking up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for granting us faith and giving us the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Thank you for for saving us. Help us to take up a, a conscious possession and assurance of that salvation and to rest in the promises of your word and the all sufficient work of Christ. And we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to unsheathe it, to not neglect it through undiscipline and busyness and lethargy, but to take it up, to read it, to study it, to memorize it, so that we might be protected in the evil day. Lord, strengthen us for this. Give us power by the Holy Spirit in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.